0: CONGRESSIONAL LEADERS HAVE STRUCK A BIG-PICTURE DEAL TO AVOID A GOVERNMENT SHUTDOWN. IT'S A RARE MOMENT OF BIPARTISAN GOVERNING AT A TIME OF DEEP DIVIDES AND A BIG TEST FOR THE STILL NEW HOUSE SPEAKER. FOR SUNDAY, JANUARY 7TH, IT'S ALL THINGS CONSIDERED FROM NPR NEWS. I'M SCOTT DETROW. COMING UP, WE'LL LOOK AT THE FUTURE OF THE NRA, AHEAD OF A TRIAL THAT COULD UPEND IT EVEN FURTHER. WE'LL ALSO HEAR ABOUT A CONTROVERSIAL TREATMENT that Kentucky is considering studying
1: using millions of dollars from opioid settlements. Abigail would represent a transformative therapeutic for treatment of opioid use disorder. And we'll talk
0: to the director of a new film revisiting a horrific story of survival.
2: I was very impressed not only about the sight of those mountains, but also about the silence. When you are there, there's nothing alive, so the only thing that you can hear is yourself.
0: First, these news headlines.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Congressional leaders reached an agreement on a $1.6 trillion framework today to keep the government funded for the rest of the fiscal year. The deal, announced by House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, sets top-line spending levels of $866 billion for defense and roughly $773 billion for non-defense spending. But it faces likely stiff opposition from far-right Republicans who want to force steep budget cuts. Congress will need to pass the bills before the first government spending deadline on January 19th, and the second one that funds the rest of the government, that happens on February 2nd. President Biden praised the agreement, saying it moves the country one step closer to preventing a, quote, needless government shutdown and protects important national priorities. The Pentagon now says that the number two official at the Defense Department, Kathleen Hicks, was kept in the dark about Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization, even though she had taken over his responsibilities and was on vacation in Puerto Rico. And Pierce Tom Bowman has more.
4: The Pentagon says operational responsibilities were transferred to Hicks on January 2nd, but she wasn't told Austin was hospitalized for complications from a medical procedure until January 4th defense officials said Hicks planned on returning to Washington the next day, but was told Austin was ready to resume control. Austin also did not inform White House officials about his whereabouts until Thursday, and a Capitol Hill source tells NPR some lawmakers were not told until late Friday afternoon, shortly before a press release was sent out. Austin has issued a statement saying, quote, I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. Tom Bowman, NPR News.
3: The Northeast is bracing for round two of a nor'easter of heavy snow today, a day after about a foot of snow fell on parts of Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York. NPR's Juliana Kim has more. Thousands of households in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania
5: were without power Sunday afternoon, and at Boston's Logan International Airport, nearly 150 departing and incoming flights had been canceled. Orange County in upstate New York saw some of the most snow this weekend with 13 inches falling by Sunday morning while parts of Connecticut and Massachusetts received up to 11 inches of snowfall. The National Weather Service issued winter storm warnings or advisories for most of Sunday in states east of Pennsylvania from New York to southern Maine. Meanwhile, another major storm is brewing. The Midwest could see blizzard conditions starting Monday night before the storm hits the northeast on Tuesday and Wednesday. Juliana Kim,
3: NPR News. And the National Weather Service has issued winter storm warnings for parts of six states in the northeast. You're listening to NPR News.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. The storm that has dumped almost a foot in some areas is coming to an end. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says as the snow calms down, colder temperatures will be the concern.
6: Watch for a quick freeze-up as the temperatures drop on the south shore of the Cape. Travel tough out there. Secondary roads, untreated surfaces especially, an additional 1 to 3 inches of snow. Now tonight the skies clear out and we drop into the teens and 20s. Sun's out tomorrow, be in the mid-30s, and the next storm moves in late Tuesday. Rain for that one, though. Localized flooding that will last into Wednesday and much warmer with highs in the 50s.
4: Anyone out shoveling on this first storm of the season is being urged to take it easy. Mass General Hospital cardiologist Tim Churchill says those who are older or have a cardiac issue are at risk of a heart attack.
3: Recognizing if they start to develop any symptoms like chest pain, chest pressure, sort of shortness of breath that seems out of proportion to what they're doing pain going down the arm, anything like that, that's really where they should back off and uh, and seek medical attention.
4: Well, crews are continuing to clear snow through the hardest hit areas. WBUR's Solon Kelleher caught up with one worker earlier today who was trying to take a quick break.
7: A 24-hour gas station in Worcester is typically a quiet scene at 5 a.m., but this Sunday morning, it's like a NASCAR pit stop for snow plows with a long day ahead of them.
4: I'll go in and get a coffee, get some caffeine in me, and uh. Like I said, fill the tank before everybody else gets gets to it as the early morning comes.
7: That's plow driver Nick DeLitto. He started his shift Saturday night and says he'll be working into tonight. That's one way the streets and parking lots are staying clear of snow. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher.
4: Well, the Patriots season ended this afternoon with a 17-3 to loss to the Jets, the Pats' final record 4-13. and The question now is whether Bill Belichick has coached his last game for New England after a 24-year run. Again, very cold overnight. Cloudy skies, lows in the low 20s, and then sunny skies mid-30s tomorrow, 24 in Boston.
7: WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people learn more at ajws.org
0: this is all things considered from npr news i'm scott detrow congressional leaders have agreed to a deal to fund the government through the end of the fiscal year the agreement would spend 886 billion dollars on defense spending and roughly 773 billion dollars on non-defense spending it's yet to pass congress which is key and we'll get back to that but those figures stick to the spending levels agreed to by president biden and former speaker of the house kevin mccarthy in a deal last summer this all means that the largest employer in the united states the federal government is much more likely to be able to keep sending out paychecks to its employees because the government is much less likely to shut down it appears eric mcdaniel covers congress and joins us now hey eric hey scott how perpetual congress question how far is this from a done deal
8: well look Maybe it's because it's the weekend, but I'm feeling like an optimist. When this announcement came out at 3.30 p.m., I was busy writing a radio script for tomorrow, which said that we just had eight legislative days with effectively no plan to avoid a partial government shutdown on January 19th and a total government shutdown on February 2nd. But now there is sort of a plan. This is definitely a good sign. With congressional leaders on board and agreeing to a top line number, it should be comparatively easy to get the 12 annual federal spending bills through that would fund the government for a year but this could still get pretty ugly just
0: how ugly eric
8: well it's already shown to enrage the most anti-compromise part of the republican party these Mm -hmm. are the hardliners in the house freedom caucus and their allies who want wanted to extract huge concessions on the border on abortion access, as well as overall spending cuts in exchange for keeping the government open. Congressman Chip Roy, one of these very folks, has already called the deal terrible at adding that it gives away leverage to get the policy concessions they were looking for. House Speaker Mike Johnson, the top Republican in the House, will not be able to pass any of these spending bills with Republican votes alone. Mm -hmm. In fact, if the spending bills from last year, these short term extensions are any indicator, it's likely that any spending bills in a Republican and controlled Congress will actually pass with more democratic support than Republican support and there are lots of procedural ways that Republicans upset about all of this could make things really gnarly over these next few weeks right we've seen that group of legislators flex their muscles
0: again and again over the course of this Congress that's what booted the last speaker so yeah. so what comes
8: next here? Well, let's go with the construction metaphor. I guess you could say they've agreed on what the square footage of the house is, how mm-hmm. much money they're going to spend. But they still need to map out the floor plan, where all that money's going to go, get all the permits, buy the materials, and actually build the house. So there's a lot of actual legislating left to be done. That's what they'll work on over the next two weeks. But they've also got to deal with other hard things. You might remember that before the Christmas holiday, Senate negotiators were trying to find a path forward on the first immigration reform since 1986, which is also a deal that has to do with Ukraine and Israel military aid. Mm -hmm. They've linked those things together. There are a record number of migrants coming to the US southern border, sometimes more than 10,000 a day, presenting themselves to border protection agents, requesting asylum, and basically everyone involved agrees that the status quo isn't working. Democrats want more money to process those claims. Republicans want to limit who's legally allowed to request asylum to stop the flow of people coming. And as though that weren't hard enough, like I said, they've linked it to military aid in Ukraine and Israel. It's going to be a feat to behold if they can get all of this done. I will keep an eye on it. And of course, keep you updated.
0: All of those things, major issues where there's no clear path forward. But on the central one, funding the federal government, there is at least a plan in place now. Eric McDaniel. Thank goodness. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you you soon. A civil trial set to begin tomorrow morning in New York could further upend the National Rifle Association. The group's longtime leader, Wayne LaPierre, announced last week that he's stepping down after 31 years, but he remains the focus of the trial, which will look at alleged misuse of funds at the powerful group. There have been more developments on the eve of the trial as well. Another former top NRA official, Joshua Powell, has now admitted wrongdoing in the case and will pay $100,000 in restitution. NPR's Brian Mann has been following this case, which is being brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, and joins us now. Hey, Brian. Hi, there, Scott. So remind us, Wayne LaPierre, what did he accomplish in his time leading the NRA? Why is he so central to this case, even as he's finally stepped away?
1: Yeah, Wayne LaPierre is really one of the chief architects of the modern gun rights movement. His departure is a big deal. And it's really his leadership, Scott, that's under scrutiny in this corruption trial. For 30 years, he was part of an inner circle that moved the NRA to the right to a far more hardline position on gun regulation at a time when mass shootings and other gun violence were rising contributed really to the transformation of what had been a nonpartisan sportsman's group into a culture war machine with deep ties to the Republican Party. Here he is in a speech in 2012 laying out that vision.
4: Is the press and the political class so consumed by fear and hatred of the NRA and American gun owners that you're willing to accept a world where real resistance to evil monsters is alone, unarmed, school principal
1: so now on the eve of this trial lapierre is stepping down new york attorney general letitia james issued a statement scott describing this moment as a victory she said joshua powell's admission of wrongdoing and wayne lapierre's resignation confirm what we have alleged for years quote the nra and its senior leaders are financially corrupt Uh, the head of the brady gun control group chris brown also issued a statement celebrating his departure she said quote wayne lapierre spent three decades peddling the big lie that more guns make us safer
0: again, the trial is still going forward, though. Uh, remind us what specifically the NRA is accused of doing wrong,
1: yeah, so as as you've been discussing, this organization's at the center of the national debate over gun control and gun safety. Uh, There was just another deadly mass shooting last week at a school in Iowa, and the NRA has managed to block most national gun regulation that some experts say would make Americans safer. But this lawsuit isn't focused on any of that. This is really about money. Uh, Attorney General James has argued that top NRA leaders, including LaPierre, basically turned the group into a grifter organization, taking more than $60 million and funneling it into their personal lives. And, and the consequences could be big. If the NRA loses this case, the group could be subject to really strict oversight by New York state officials. You know, one of the most conservative activist groups in the country would be watchdogged constantly by a, a Democratic state attorney general.
0: But at the same time, as you reported over time, the NRA is not as powerful as it once was. There have been financial problems. It's scaled back its operations. Given all that, why does this trial still matter so much?
1: Yeah, from the outset, NRA officials have portrayed this as a political attack on their conservative organization. They made those arguments repeatedly, but uh, those arguments got thrown out, which is why we're going to trial. But clearly, as you say, this legal fight and the scandal for LaPierre have crippled the NRA. They tried unsuccessfully to file for bankruptcy. They've lost a ton of members. So as this trial begins, the NRA is a shadow of its former self. But the NRA's hardline stances, Scott, on gun rights and the Second Amendment they do still shape the national debate. And and we'll see whether this trial affects that role. That's NPR's Brian Mann. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. $50 billion
0: is on its way to state and local governments over the coming years. The pool of funding comes from multiple legal settlements with pharmaceutical companies that profited from manufacturing or selling opioid painkillers. As that money continues to be dispersed, officials are trying to figure out how to spend it best to help communities devastated by the deadly opioid epidemic. We're going to take a close look at one of the ways that Kentucky is considering using some of that money. Kentucky has had some of the nation's highest opioid overdose death rates and it's expecting over $800 million over the coming years. The state commission there is considering supporting research on an illegal psychedelic drug called Ibogaine as a treatment for addiction. With us now is reporter Morgan Watkins of Louisville Public Media who's been following the Ibogaine debate. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. So what exactly is Ibogaine?
5: It's a substance found in the iboga plant that grows in West Central Africa. People who take it can experience a state of waking dreams. There's some evidence that it might reduce or eliminate addiction withdrawal symptoms and cravings. Dakota Meyer is a decorated military veteran from Kentucky and in September, he spoke to the state commission that decides how to spend a lot of Kentucky's opioid settlement money. Meyer said Ibogaine helped him process the traumas that haunted him.
9: The experience was intense and transformative helping me break free from the suffocating grip of PTSD and depression.
5: Now using Ibogaine isn't without risk. Some research shows it can cause heart problems. Dr. Mark Hegney is a cardiologist. Here's what he told the Kentucky Commission in October.
4: My opinion is that Ibogaine is not safe. The efficacy is unproven. It's unlikely to be approved by FDA in a reasonable time period. And the cost to Kentucky would be unsupportable.
5: However, Ibogaine advocates say the risks can be managed with medical supervision, and the drug is still worth researching.
0: I mean, of all the different ways to tackle uh, the opioid epidemic, why are Kentucky officials considering this research in the first place?
5: Well, the idea came from Brian Hubbard when he was leading the state commission. Back in May, he proposed spending $42 million from the opioid settlements to support Ibogaine research. He said he's heard from a lot of people that Ibogaine could work as an addiction treatment.
1: If this anecdotal evidence can be clinically validated, abigain would represent a transformative therapeutic for treatment of opioid use disorder.
0: I mean, but since he made that proposal, uh, it seems like there's been a change in leadership. Does that uh, affect the way that Kentucky is thinking about doing this research?
5: Hubbard's idea had support from Kentucky's last attorney general, but now there's a new AG, Russell Coleman, and he replaced Hubbard with a former DEA agent who will lead the State Opioid Commission from now on. It's not clear if the new leadership will support the Ibogaine proposal. Amber Capone is CEO of a group called Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. She says it's disheartening to see that Kentucky may shift away from Ibogaine and hopes the new AG will seriously consider it. Capone says her organization helps veterans access Ibogaine at reputable clinics in Mexico where the drug is unregulated, and they've seen the difference it can make.
8: We have had veterans in our program that have had opioid dependency issues from injuries sustained on the battlefield, et cetera, and they have reported a complete reversal of those challenges following Ibogaine.
0: I mean, so this question is up in the air at the moment. What else is the state going to be doing with this money, which again is about $800 million, more than that over the coming years?
5: The Ibogaine proposal is just one of many ideas that the state commission has been considering. The attorney general's office reports Kentucky already has invested over $32 million of the funds in addiction prevention, treatment and recovery efforts. Local governments similarly are evaluating how to spend their portion of the settlements. And Kentucky will receive the opioid settlement funds in stages over the course of more than a decade. So the task of deciding how to spend that money is just beginning.
0: That's Morgan Watkins with Louisville Public Media. Thank you so much. Thanks. You're listening to
4: All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Cropilio. Thanks so much for being with us. Parents, join us tomorrow at City Space for a conversation with Jack Zhang chef and stay-at-home dad whose viral videos on cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook tickets at wbur.org slash events
7: we're funded by you our listeners and by lexus broadway in boston presenting girl from the north country playing in boston this march written and directed by Connor mcpherson this new musical reimagines the songs of bob dylan including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com.
4: Clouding up overnight uh, and uh, very cold with lows down around 20 degrees. So it's going to be very slippery out there. Keep that in mind if you're headed out 24 now in Boston.
3: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Congressional leaders have come to a $1.6 trillion agreement to fund the federal government through the rest of the fiscal year and avoid a partial government shutdown. But the deal faces stiff opposition from hard-right Republicans who want to force more budget cuts. Funding is set to lapse on January 19th for some federal agencies and February 2nd for the rest of the government. Israel's military says it's dismantled the military infrastructure of Hamas in northern Gaza, and it's shifting its offensive to the enclaves in the southern half. And at the weekend box office, Timothy Chameley and Wonka took the top spot for the third time in its four weekends in theaters with an estimated $14 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
10: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org.
0: It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. In October 1972, a plane carrying members of a rugby team from Uruguay, among others, crashed in the Andes. A group of survivors lived through the plane crash, only to face the frigid cold and snow of the mountains, avalanches, and most famously, a lack of food. As they fought for their lives for more than two months, they fed themselves by cannibalizing the bodies of those who had already died. The story of the crash and its aftermath has been told before, but in the hands of director Juan Antonio Bayona, who based his film Society of the Snow on the book of the same name, we see a uniquely human side of the survivors. He told me that visiting the crash site was essential to understanding the survivors' stories.
2: So the first thing I did was to to go to the Valley of the Tears in the Argentinian side of the Andes where the plane crashed, and I was um, there the same time of the year. So I was able to sleep there in a small camp and to experience the altitude sickness, to experience the this sense of loneliness that you have there. And it, it was very impressive, you know. To me, I, I was very impressed not only about the sight of those mountains. This, this is the biggest uh, uh, mountain rage on earth, but also about the silence. When you are there, there's nothing alive. So the, you, the mm-hmm. only thing that you can hear is yourself.
0: Yeah, the, the muffling of the snow and, 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 and the visuals too. I mean, there are so many scenes in the movie where it seems like they're almost specks uh, against an entirely white backdrop. And you can just feel the the isolation of, of the survivors just out there by themselves with no other living thing in sight. I mean... You know, I, I want to ask about, about the dead for a moment because I introduced this story the way it's most often told through the survivors, the people who made it back. But, but most of the people on that flight died and your film is very intentional about incorporating their stories into it. Why was that so important to you?
2: Well, actually, it was uh, the survivors who decided 36 years after the plane crash to write another book because they didn't recognize themselves in the tale the tale basically was all about the rugby team um the heroes that came back from the mountain the cannibalism you know which the, the story is about that but that's when you read the book that they wrote it's it's a small part of a story that it's about love about generosity in the most the most extreme way so it was like a story written against the story you know that was in the popular minds
0: i mean there's a lot of spirituality in the movie many of the people uh trying to survive are deeply religious but as the movie goes on you see in more and more of a faith in each other a faith in their community that really comes to Mm -hmm. comes to bear in terms of what they say but also what they do how they treat each other
2: which is more about the spirituality more than religion uh, i think there is something beautiful in the way they these people gave themselves to the other ones that that kind of like ritual where they offer their bodies in case if um, their friends needed it um it's kind of like a, it's it's a very transcendental act you know like mm-hmm. like this extreme <laughs> way of generosity, you know, there's something transcendental about that idea. So to me, it's more about a spiritual spirituality and finding that God could be everywhere.
0: I mean, you're talking about about one of the elements of their story that is the most famous, the fact that, that the survivors decided in order to stay alive, they, they had to eat the bodies of, of the people who had died. Um, you show the characters struggle with that decision You show them thinking about it, putting it off, going through just, just, you know, kind of the the guilt that comes with it. But you as a filmmaker also had to make decisions of how to show that on screen. And and a lot of, I mean, the most horrific part of it, the the cutting up the bodies mostly happens off screen. You talked before about being respectful of their stories. How did you think through how to show this important part of the story in the right way?
2: To me, it was all about uh, getting into their minds and try to... feel the story the way they felt it in in the mountain Uh, these people um, the first day they did that they felt miserable they felt terrible the most miserable people on earth the day after they were doing a, a queue a line to get their portions of food so the taboo was broken very fast because they, they were starving in a way that we cannot understand. Is the, the kind of hunger do you have after being five days, six days, not eating anything and knowing that there is nothing to eat. So there was only one chance, you know, and actually it was very interesting to get into their minds. These, these guys were people that were in college. So some of them were studying medicine, some of them were studying law, and they approach the, this subject matter from all the perspective in a very calm way, talking about everything, all of them together. And then after days, they decided that they had to do it because there was no option, which is very interesting the way they, they, they get to this massive uh, consensus you know, between all of them. Uh, I think that's what makes the, the experience so remarkable, the way they talk about things listening to everybody and not forcing anybody to do anything against their will.
0: You talked to these survivors, you included them in the process. What was it they wanted the most from this film, going into it, given all of the other ways it's been portrayed over the years? What did they tell you was most important to them?
2: For them, it was very important that the film will pay justice to the experience they went through. I, I, I think at the end, what, what, what is in there is this idea that um, we are all part of the same thing. There is this line, someone telling Roberto Canessa, you have the strongest legs, you need to walk for us. And mm-hmm. to me, in that line, there is the, the unconscious realization that you and I are the same thing. Uh, and by doing so uh, uh, i think you're touching something transcendental as we were talking before you know this 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 way of understanding that we are all part of the same thing there's no one more important than in, than, than the other ones here in in the plane you know so yeah. to me that, that that was at the end what puts these people in common you know the way they gave to the other ones they they offered the, the, to the other ones knowing that they were all part of the same thing
0: That's Juan Antonio Bayona, director of Society of the Snow. It's out on Netflix now. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you.
0: We're going to spend the next few minutes on the remarkable life of Maggie Higgins, the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for foreign correspondence. She helped change war reporting, both by shifting what kinds of stories journalists were filing and by helping kick open the door for other women. She is the subject of the biography Fierce Ambition, the life and legend of war correspondent Maggie Higgins. The author, Jeanette Conant, spoke to my co-host Mary Louise Kelly. Conant says that on an early assignment, Higgins was eager to cover the liberation of Dachau, the German concentration camp, but women were barred from the combat zone.
9: So she had become increasingly frustrated cooling her heels behind the lines, and she heard that the camp might be liberated. And she knew it was going to be one of the biggest stories of the war. So she talked a young Stars and Stripes correspondent into uh, letting her ride in his Jeep. And they dashed across occupied territory ahead of the Third Army in hopes of being the first at Dachau. And they made it. And they were among the very first to enter the camp. And it was a truly you know gruesome and a terrible spectacle yeah
6: i'm wondering if i mean there's nothing that could prepare any human for the sight that awaited them but for a very young rookie war correspondent how did she
9: navigate that how did she capture it in the story that she filed well she had been among the first reporters to enter buchenwald just a few weeks earlier so she in a sense, knew more than even most of the liberating troops because some of them had never been to a concentration camp before. So she steeled herself for the worst. But she said later that nothing could have prepared her, you know, for the sight that awaited them outside the main camp. They came across an abandoned train, and there were some forty uh, cattle cars filled with dead men, women, and children, you know, still in their striped prisoner uniforms. They had been left there to starve to death, to die of the cold. It was a staggering sight, but they had to press on to go further into the camp to liberate the prisoners. Maggie was one of the first in. The men, half-starved, dying, desperate, of course, were overjoyed to see her. She spoke several languages, and she said, Dupus try, you're free. And pandemonium ensued. You know, They picked her up, they threw her in the air, they hugged her, they kissed her. I mean, she brought them the news that they had been waiting for. So it was one of the most uh, emotional, tumultuous moments of the war. And she recorded it on the front pages of the New York Herald Tribune. And the story did make her famous overnight.
6: Yeah. She won the Pulitzer Prize for covering a different war, the Korean War. What stands out to you about how she covered that? What stories she found worth telling?
9: Well, she earned a reputation, uh, starting with Dachau, for sort of reckless disregard for her personal safety. She would insist on going where the action was, on going with the troops and covering the battles. And in Korea, it was particularly dangerous. More correspondents died in a few months. Of Korea than in the entirety of World War II. It was a very dangerous war. And she kept covering the combat and going right to the front lines. And she went into Incheon with the Marines. Uh, She covered the fifth wave. They were trapped against a seawall. The enemy was rolling grenades down. They were harassed by sniper fire. And men fell around her. And miraculously, she survived. And she covered the combat the way very few did. And certainly in Korea, no other woman. Mm. But she did not want that to be what she was known for. She wanted to be seen as a good newspaper man. She didn't want to be distinguished for her sex.
6: Yeah, she did help kick open the door for other women. And so I was interested to read by your account that other women journalists didn't really seem to like her very much.
9: No, because she was uh, singularly unsisterly. You know, she wanted to be one of the guys. She She wasn't a feminist per se. She just wanted equal opportunity for herself, (laughs) not for her sex. And so uh, she broke down the doors because of her unbridled ambition. She, She wanted to be allowed to cover every story the way her competitors were allowed to. And I don't think she was interested in sharing the glory with another woman. I think that said, also, she was very tough. But she wasn't particularly generous, I don't think, in helping uh, the younger generation. But a lot of those pioneering women developed very thick skins to get where they were. They were impatient and tough and very single-minded, focused on their own career, their own mission, and not much else. Her
6: professional success came at a personal cost. And a good deal of your book focuses on her personal life. Why? Why important to include all of that?
9: because I didn't want to just glamorize the idea of some badass war babe, you know, the fearless, intrepid Maggie Higgins. There was enough of that myth-making in her own lifetime. She suffered a lot because she was unusually attractive for her profession. She was a very beautiful blonde. And it was a very feminine look for a very unfeminine job. And it brought her... Enormous scrutiny, more scrutiny, arguably, than a woman who looked another way might have gotten. And she knew it was partly responsible for her fame. It also was responsible for some of the nastiest, most venomous gossip you can imagine. Her male competitors accused her of advancing on her back. Anything that she did that got her an exclusive or allowed her to beat her competitors was immediately dismissed as uh, something she got, you know, with more than lowered lashes, as they used to say. I wanted to really show how tough it was, the toll that it can take, and how women are just judged for everything, from their appearance to their conduct, in a way that is just still much tougher than it is for the men.
6: I wonder if she could whisper across generations to the current crop of war correspondence, chronicling events in the Middle East, in Ukraine, and beyond. What words of advice do you think Maggie Higgins might offer?
9: (laughs) I think she would tell them, don't listen, don't care, don't let it stop you. Because I think that's what distinguishes Maggie more than anything, as Mm. she had this ferocious ambition. And she didn't let all the abuse that she had to take, keep her from her goals, and she achieved them.
0: Jeanette Conant is the author of Fierce Ambition, The Life and Legend of War Correspondent Maggie Higgins. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. College football's national championship will be decided tomorrow night when the University of Michigan and the University of Washington, the two highest ranked teams in the nation, face each other. From Seattle, KUOW's Vaughn Jones has more.
7: Both teams come into the game undefeated and the champion of their respective conferences. Michigan and Washington both claim multiple college football championships, but it's been a while since either team reached the pinnacle. Michigan's last title came in 1997, and Washington's last title came in 1991. These two teams have played each other 13 times across 71 years, most recently a lopsided Michigan victory in 2021. Neither team has made it past the semifinals of the college football playoff until this season. Michigan's success this season comes by way of an elite defense, allowing the least points per game in college football. Detroit Free Press reporter Reiner Sabin says the pressure is on for Michigan to win this year's championship because the team will likely look completely different next season.
8: Jim Harbaugh said before the season that he expected 20 players potentially to get drafted off his roster, which would be an NFL record uh, as it relates to the draft. So I think for Michigan, it's, it all comes down to this game.
7: This includes starting quarterback J.J. McCarthy, who played well enough to be considered for the Manning Award given to the best quarterback in college football. Despite McCarthy's high-level play, Saban says he expects Michigan's offense to lean on superstar running back Blake Corum.
8: He's a senior player and has been in the Heisman conversation before, that was particularly last year. This year he has come back from an injury and has been kind of the heart and soul of Michigan football.
7: Washington has had trouble stopping running backs this season, so Saban says to expect a lot from Corum. In contrast to Michigan's elite defense, number two Washington leans on a high-powered offense to win games. The Huskies are led by Michael Penix Jr., the runner-up for this year's Heisman Trophy given to the most outstanding player in college football. Penix had a signature performance in the Sugar Bowl against Texas on New Year's Day, where he completed 12 straight passes and threw for over 400 yards and three touchdowns. Christian Capel writes on Montlake, a newsletter covering Washington football. He says Penix is the team's leader, but Washington's offense is full of high-level players.
4: He throws to some really talented receivers like Romo Dunze. He was one of three finalists for the Bolitnikoff Award, which is given to the best receiver in the
0: country. Washington's offensive line won the Joe Moore Award this year, which is given annually to the best offensive line in the country.
7: Capel says the game will likely come down to Washington's defense, which struggled against Texas despite covering two fumbles. The teams will meet at a neutral site, NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas. That's a long trip for Washington Husky fans, but some were able to cheer on the team before they left for Texas. Hundreds of fans gathered in the rain on campus Friday to celebrate as the team loaded onto their buses and headed for the airport. Fan Brent Enerson sent the team off decked head-to-toe in gold. He says he's been waiting for this for a long time. Oh, it means
6: the world, you know, uh dogs haven't been here in a while. They try their best every year. And here we are at the top with our chance to be national champs. This is the place to be right now.
7: The Wolverines and Huskies will kick off in Houston at 7.30 Eastern time on Monday. After Monday's game wraps up, Washington is leaving the Pac-12 conference to join Michigan in the Big Ten. The Wolverines and Huskies already have a rematch scheduled for October. For NPR News, I'm Vaughn Jones in Seattle.
0: This is NPR News.
4: You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Glad you're with us. Coming up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. And tonight, a conversation with David Remnick and filmmaker Ava DuVrene about her new film, Origin. In the forecast, the uh, snow tapering off, but the temperatures have really dropped, making it for icy conditions out there underfoot and on the roads. So do be aware of that. Temperature right now is 24 degrees. It could go down as low as 20. Sunshine returns tomorrow. Temperatures rebound to the mid-30s. And then clouds with a slight chance of rain or snow, but no accumulation expected on Tuesday as temperatures on Tuesday will climb to the mid 40s to near 50. Again, right now in Boston, it is 24 degrees.
3: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden heads to Charleston, South Carolina tomorrow where he will speak at the Mother Emanuel AME Church. That's where nine people were shot and killed by a white supremacist in 2015. The Pentagon says the number two official there was unaware that the defense secretary was in the hospital, even as she was assuming his duties. Lloyd Austin was hospitalized January 1st and power was transferred to Kathleen Hicks the next day, but she didn't know the reason until January 4th. He remains hospitalized. And North Korea has carried out what appears to be a third consecutive day of artillery drills near its maritime border with South Korea. North Korea is disputing the South's account of events. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
10: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org afterthefact And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
0: It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. For the past eight months, this corner of our Sunday show has been a place of introspection. The Enlighten Me series, helmed by my friend Rachel Martin, has explored how we all search for meaning. She has spoken with people who find that meaning in some kind of religious or spiritual practice, and others who find it in their own ways. The series is now going on a bit of a break, maybe its own journey of discovery, if you will. (laughs) But first, we're going to look back at some of those conversations and talk about what lies ahead with Rachel Martin. Hey there.
11: Well played, my friend. Hello. <laughs>
0: nice to talk to you. <laughs>
11: nice to talk to you, too. Do you know, sorry to hijack this from the get-go. Whoa. At the beginning of this whole project, I swore to myself I was never going to use the phrase spiritual journey or even the word journey. And there you just bookend the, the whole thing. Did you, you make right. it up
0: to that point without saying it? No,
11: it's impossible. <laughs> it just happens. Because it was. It truly, It truly was. It wasn't just like a phrase. I was... I was going through a thing. I was moving through a process that was going on a journey. And everyone came along for the ride. So it was fun.
0: Well, before I get up into your spiritual face and ask you (laughs) questions, um, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening next with
11: Enlighten Me? Yes. So um, we are working on another life for this project. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, we got a lot of great feedback from people. It meant a lot to our listeners. It moved a lot of people And we're going to build on that. And we are making something new. It's still going to appear on the radio, but it's going to come at you in a different version too.
0: Are we going to get a podcast out of this? Podcast! Podcast! You got it
11: right. You got it right. It's all the rage, Scott. I don't know if you I've heard about
0: this audio (laughs) format.
11: So we are. We're making a podcast, everyone. Um, But I think it's going to be really cool. It's going to allow us to be... um, more creative and it's going to allow us to really sit into these conversations in a different kind of way. Okay. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well,
0: in the meantime, you did about 30 of these segments. You talked to more than 30 guests about how they found meaning in their lives. Did this at the end accomplish what you initially were setting out to do?
11: (laughs) I think I fessed up in the beginning that this, it actually was like kind of a selfish project. I was genuinely, it's okay to admit that, right? Um, I was genuinely going through my own existential, not really crisis, but just inquiry, Mm -hmm. you know? And I had left a pretty high profile job in news and was craving different kinds of conversations with people about big questions, um, about what life is about and what happens when we're not living anymore. Yeah. And did I achieve what I set out to? I did in that I I wanted to connect with people about the stuff that I was feeling kind of alone in my head about, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I was stewing away and I needed to connect with other people who were asking the same questions and feel less alone. And I found out that a lot of people were asking these questions yeah. of themselves and so we started a broader conversation
0: well let's let's talk about some of those big questions and let's start with like a really simple easy one that's really easy to define and think about and clarify and come to all the conclusions and that's of course god
11: god yeah straightforward
0: (laughs) you know we heard a lot of different descriptions of god or a kind of a divine presence in these interviews some people were very clear they did not believe in god others Mm -hmm. were like rain wilson very confident in their faith but Mm -hmm. i think a lot of the people you talk to fell into a bit of a gray area like Patrick Stewart, who at one point compared God to how he felt on a theater stage as a young man.
2: I believe in presence because while I was there breathing quietly, it was as though I was surrounded by all the hundreds of actors who had been on that stage for the last hundred years.
0: You asked so many people a variation of this question. Did anything surprise you or did you pick up at any themes or, or or through lines when you talk to people about God?
11: Oh, very, very few of the people who I talked to had a rigid definition mm-hmm. for what that meant, um, which is sort of where I was at, too, at the beginning of this. And and now feel more comfortable with that ambiguity. Um, people come up for di- with different substitute words. Right. I, I talked to my brother and sister, actually, for one One segment, and you know, my brother is a religious person, Mm -hmm. but he said, you know, I don't believe in some, you know, man with a beard up in a sky telling me what to do, which is, you know, a rather basic idea um, of what that presence could be. See, I use the word presence because we we run into trouble with language when it comes to defining what that is. A lot of us do. So -hmm. you hear words like, you know, energy. Connection, presence, time and time again. It's because nobody knows. Nobody knows. But the whole idea of God is is just it's placing us in su- in a in a larger in a larger universe, right? It, it gives perspective on the smallness of of us, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think is healthy, well, you know. And thinking about something bigger than yourself.
0: How do you think about it? And has how you think about a God or God or a presence or whatever you want to call it? Has that changed over the course of this project?
11: Um, I I used to feel my definition hasn't changed. What has changed is my comfort level about it, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
0: In a positive or negative way? Oh, positive.
11: Really positive. I, I felt such almost anguish over it in the beginning. And I, a lot of that had to do with Um, my father's passing he was a a very religious person and I grew up in a very religious um, Protestant Christian household Mm -hmm. where there was a very confined description and definition of what God is and that didn't suit me and hasn't in my adult life and I through these conversations I have come to the realization that that is just fine (laughs) it is it is fine not to know
0: well I I think that Personal comfort with the idea, I think, gets into another big theme, and that's the idea of prayer and the idea of mindfulness. And mm-hmm. and one of the very first uh one of the very first segments looked at the idea of meditation. You mm-hmm. went to a, a Buddhist monastery and, and 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 talked a lot and thought a lot about meditation, and you ended that episode talking about how that was something that that you were going to embrace more in your life. Did you keep that up? I did. And I how's that really going? Good
11: about it. It's going great. Um, it has ebbed and flowed. Uh, in other words, there have been weeks where I was like on the money, up early before my kids, sitting on my meditation pill. I got the candle. I got the coffee. The whole shebang. Um, and then other weeks, not so consistent. But I keep coming back, and I feel better when I do. And it has, it has made a difference for me. Um, I I feel it making me. More patient <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and able to sit in discomfort. Um, is it prayer for me, uh, which I think is what you were kind of leading towards? Well, before
0: know- we ask about prayer, oh, oh yeah, okay. I, I, I do want to know: Did it ever get easier once you made it more of a practice? Was it easier, or was it always as hard as, as it was at first?
11: It got it got easier the more consistent I was. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, over Christmas, there were like ten days when I didn't. And then and then i did again and i i felt like i was back at not square one but I'm like, okay i'm starting out at like 10 minutes again yeah and oh wow my mind is all over the place but that's the whole thing that's the whole thing is like life is like that your mind is like that you go off you know you're not you're you're not focused things happen it's the coming back it, the whole point is the coming back the return yeah. and the awareness of doing that and so in that way it's just it's been wonderful
0: i think there are probably a lot of people listening and i think you might have fallen into this as well based on things you've said in interviews who are very eager of the idea of meditation right that's something they're willing to embrace but the idea of prayer makes them uncomfortable or makes mm-hmm. them embarrassed or feels mm-hmm. not a thing for them you you told you told katherine may at one point you kind of felt that way too is that still the case and, and
11: I did feel that way, um, and and I still feel that way. Yeah. And guess what? You should listen to yourself. Um, I started writing in a journal as part of my meditation practice, and that has become like my prayer. And I'm not addressing it to anyone in particular. I'm not writing dear God, I'm not writing dear me, um, but I'm I'm putting those thoughts out there in that way. Now, to be clear, I still make my kids say prayers at dinner time. (laughs) So I feel kind of a faker in that way if I'm not doing it in my actual life, but I'm trying to, to instill in them just like a practice of, of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And for me, maybe because it's my, my cultural inheritance and this is what I grew up with, but it feels like a ritual that I want them to at least have an understanding of. And then they can reject yeah. it in due time, you know, or not. But I like giving them the exposure to that.
0: It's just, I feel like a lot of the things that you grow up with um, come to a point of inflection for yourself when you are actively passing them down or not to your kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, and your kids are older than mine, but I'm, I'm at the beginning of that point right now and it's doing a lot of evaluation of do I really believe this or mm-hmm. not? If so, why? Mm-hmm. What do I say about mm-hmm. it? But I think the other moment where a lot of things come up for reevaluation is the other end of the spectrum and that's 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 death particularly deaths of of parents and you talked a lot about how the deaths of your parents were an early reason why you started thinking about these things and and you wanted to to have these conversations and you had some really moving conversations about death i think one of one of the ones that i've thought about the most was with comedian duncan trussell who interviewed his mother as she was dying. Uh, and that was something she had wanted to do.
3: I'm so grateful to her for that, that she was smart enough in like her last few weeks of life to sort of give me something to answer the questions that I would have asked her now mm-hmm. that I have kids if she were still alive.
11: Hmm.
0: Did did any of these conversations make you change how you think about grief and death?
11: Oh, I love that you picked that Duncan Trussell conversation. Um... I I so appreciated the way that his mom talked about grief to him. She she was trying to help him get used to this idea of her not being around anymore. And and that she wasn't disappearing, that it was he was going to be okay without her. Um but that she she would be there for him to manifest, you know, when mm-hmm. he needed that. And I, I haven't forgotten that conversation. I love that idea of being able to call on someone when you need them and um, that they never really leave you. Sometimes something will just happen, right? I will see something that seems super random. A coincidence is how most people would probably dismiss these things. But mm-hmm. in that, I see my parents, if it's something particular to them. And yeah, I'm a person who derives meaning from that and yeah. and that gives me a lot of comfort you know I don't (laughs) I don't care what anybody else thinks about it I don't need to be I don't need to justify it to anyone else but if you know if I see my mom in a particular bird that's hanging around me on the beach or Mm -hmm. if I hear my dad in a song that happens to randomly come on a radio station I never listened to that that is a spiritual experience for me
0: yeah I had uh Randomly, a long conversation about cheesesteaks on January 1st. <laughs> and then I then it was with somebody who was, my friend was visiting, he was going home, he was stopping, he was like, I'm gonna stop in Philly to eat a cheesesteak. We we're talking right about. I do we're not going right now. We're going exactly the... where okay. you left oh, it. Oh, exactly where okay. you left it. And I had that conversation. And then I realized about 10 minutes or so later that it had been 10 years to the the day since a good friend of mine died and that one of the things we did a lot was go eat Uh cheesesteaks at lunch. Like, we would go, Uh leave, and, like, and I hadn't thought about that. And, like, Uh on one hand, there's not a connection at all. But, like, I thought a lot about it and I kind of felt that same way of, like, oh, that was was a big part of our relationship. And without realizing it, I talked a lot about that. And, wow, that was 10 years ago
11: today. I love that.
0: And it made me, like, the rest of the day, it made a sad anniversary kind of a happy one yeah in my mind And
11: sadness isn't bad by the way sadness gets a bad rap but yeah. it's it's part of the human experience and there's there's like a warmth about sadness there's longing yeah and and as long as you you know how to flip it around but that's just now i sound like some i don't know what <laughs> it's just love scott it's just love you love let that me person.
0: let me end with this um you, for, for most of your career, were a very serious journalist. You...
3: <laughs> I still am a
11: very serious journalist, but I'm just leaning into a different part of
0: yes, who I am. I I framed that poorly, mm-hmm. but... I forgive you. There were not as many opportunities for you to totally open That's yourself right. up to listeners. That's right. In the way, as we talk about death and God and prayer and ghosts mm. here in this conversation, mm-hmm. it's a very different thing. Was that... Was that in any way hard for you to do, or did you just did it just feel natural at this point? I don't point?
11: know. I think, I think I was sort of desperate to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all craving authentic connection, you know, and and you you don't you don't want all this stuff from your news person, right? You just, <laughs> you just I don't. Want the news. You just you want the news, um, but I was in a different headspace, yeah. and I. It has been cathartic for me. <laughs> I hope it has. I hope it has been meaningful for people who have listened. Um, but it 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 has not been hard to share that stuff. I I think that the more people open up about these kinds of experiences, um, we all feel less alone, and that that's sort of my goal these days.
1: Yeah.
0: That's Rachel Martin, the host of our Enlighten Me series, and still a very serious (laughs) journalist. Uh, Keeping her out for what is next for her a little later this year. Rachel, thanks again for for coming on our show each Sunday. I feel like this was...